0: Let me invite you to turn to John chapter 6, please, this morning, John chapter 6, and we're doing a short series in prep for Christmas, worshiping the Christ of Christmas, aiming to keep our focus on the central reality of Christmas as we come up to the celebration because there are so many things that could distract us from the center and and cause us to have all of our energy and attention uh, shifted. To good things, which are not the best thing and most important thing. And so I want to try and help us do that. We're doing it by looking at the I am statements in the Gospel of John. And last week we began uh, with the absolute statement, that is, one that's not qualified at all. And Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. All the others have some form of modifier to them. We'll look at that in a moment. But this one is just a a general, absolute statement of his existence. And so we focused, first of all, on the person of Christmas and the basic truth that that Jesus is God's eternal Son who came down from heaven and became human so that he might identify with us in our humanness and rescue us from our fallenness. That he is a preexistent person, fully divine, who took to himself a human nature so that this miraculous person, the God-man, could fully identify with us as human and also become the sacrifice for our sins so that we might be rescued from it. And, and you can't understand Christmas at all if you don't focus in on that reality that, that Jesus is the Christ who came down from heaven took to himself a human nature so that he might be able to restore the relationship of God's creation to the creator. There are seven I am statements that have modifiers of some sort, and what we're going to do, the Lord willing, this morning is look at four of them as focusing, I've clustered them around the purpose of Christmas. Why did Jesus come? And and those four statements, we'll just survey. Basically, just going to set the context for it, what the central meaning of it is, and the significance of it. We'll survey all four of them, and then I'll try and tie it all together so we can understand uh, what they're communicating to us about Christ. And these are the four statements: I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we'll start in chapter 6 with the first of these. And that's the statement that Jesus makes. I am the bread of life. Notice verse 35. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And if you would drop down to verse 48. Says, I am the bread of life. And then there's one that's essentially saying the same thing, but not in the exact same words. Look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And so here are these three statements. And what you might uh, I think we need to understand in each of these, these are really a response of Jesus to something in the context that that he takes this metaphor or image and use it of himself. And the context in this particular case is at the beginning of chapter six, he provides the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. There's all these people gathered together, they're away from the city, they don't have food. And Jesus says, we need to give them food. He takes the little things that are provided and he multiplies it out. So 5,000 men and others all eat. So he does this great miracle, which clearly captures the attention, and I would think we could safely say the selfish desires of the crowd because of what he had provided for them. And I say the selfish desires of the crowd because look at verses 26 and 27. Here's what Jesus says to them. Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God has set his seal. So they, uh, in between the feeding and a journey across the, the, the water to another area, these people are seeking after him and and Jesus begins to uh, confront the fact that they don't really want the Lord. They just want lunch, right? They want Jesus to do stuff for them. And so Jesus begins to push back against that and and help them to see that if they're just looking for food that perishes, they're looking for the wrong thing. All right, so it's that backdrop, food that perishes against food that endures to eternal life, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's offering himself to them as the bread that endures to eternal life, as the food that they truly need for life. And he's pushing against that kind of self-centered desire for temporal gratification but that that then also as if you could think of it this way they're looking for lunch he says don't look for lunch you need the Lord and they sort of get offended and they say well then show us some sign look at verses 30 and 31. Our father they said to him what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you what work do you perform our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as is written he gave them bread out of heaven to eat so you see how the conversation's advancing you're just going for lunch you need to think more than that you need life they go well if you know if you're the person who's giving this show us some sign prove it to us God sent food from heaven. The manna, he's referring back to Exodus where God six days a week fed them with this miraculous provision from heaven. And they say, this is what Moses did. In other words, pitting Jesus against Moses because of his claim. And then Jesus says, no, I'm the bread who's come down from heaven, right? That's why we saw in verse 35, he makes that statement about being the bread of life. Then down in, in, in a little bit later, he says, I've come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. So the context is actually one of confrontation about the difference between temporal desires and eternal needs. They want to be just satisfied with daily provision And Jesus is pointing out the fact that there's a far greater problem that has to be answered. They need life, which implies that they're dead and facing death. And that's why he calls himself, look at verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And so the food that he offers is life, And that's clearly eternal life based on verse 27, but for the food which endures to eternal life. But also he confirms that with the description in, or I should look at verse 47, truly, 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 I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. So the kind of life he's talking about is eternal life. And even more specifically, look at verses 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's clearly talking about eternal life, or we could say, resurrection life. They will have a kind of life that defeats death. So, Jesus is the answer for death. And so, here's the first statement that I would make as we start to survey survey these. Christ came to defeat death and give life to those who believe in him. All right, they're, they're in need of something more than just the thing that will sustain their physical life, yet perishes. They need something that will give them spiritual life, which is eternal and guarantees their resurrection at the last day. Jesus came to defeat death so that they could have eternal life through faith in him. Let me ask you to turn to John chapter 8. Our second, I am this morning, John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus, Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, here's the setting, the context for it. This one I think is a little bit larger in John because of the the way he uses the motif or theme of darkness. So I'd like us just to look at the other times he mentions it to help uh, understand that. You can keep your place here in John 8, but would you go back to John chapter 1, please? John chapter 1. Speaking of his entrance into the world, Jesus, the one who is the word, Verses four and five. John 1, four and five. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some of you, if you have a New American Standard Version, have a footnote there, and the footnote says, overpower it. In fact, uh, the song. Uh, that was sung, uh, takes that interpretation of it, says overwhelmed. The light was not overwhelmed by the darkness. So, but here's the first mention of darkness. The light, Jesus, shines in the darkness. Look at chapter three and verse 19. Chapter three and verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So the the Son, who is the light, came into the world, but rather than accepting Him, people loved the darkness. And they loved the darkness, it says, because their deeds were evil. Turn to chapter 12, chapter 12 and verse 35. 12:35 So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. While you have the light, while you walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And again, here, the darkness is set in opposition to light and it has to do with uh, not being able to live or walk because of the darkness, right? You don't know, end of verse 35, he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. So the the picture is of you being outside in the dark and not being able to see. I remember the first time I, first time I can recall it really being dark. Dark because you grew up in the in the suburban areas. There's always uh, you know light that's around. And I was uh, 19 years old, and I was traveling for neighborhood Bible time. And the first rally we did was in a city called Harrisburg, Nebraska, where we had to do door to door by car. I mean, that's that's what it, it was like. Nowhere'sville, and I came walking out of the church. The parsonage was across the street. I came walking out of the church at night. And literally couldn't see my hand because there was nothing, no lights anywhere. I could see uh, way, way off in the distance the halo of lights from the nearest big city, which was probably smaller than most of our suburbs. I mean, it was just absolutely dark. I'd never been in that kind of darkness before and And so I'm going across the street very carefully, trying to see if I can pick a light out in the house to get me to the place where I'm trying to go All right that's exactly what he's talking about. Humanity is in its moral condition is in darkness. it can't walk in that darkness, and what's that darkness produced by why do we why are we trapped there because we Love darkness rather than light, because our deeds are evil. That's what chapter three, verse nineteen said. You're in chapter twelve. Drop down to to uh, verse verse uh, forty six. Here Jesus says, "I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness." All right. So there's uh, two two. I mean, basically two realms within which you could live, light or darkness. All right, that's, that's what Jesus, that's the backdrop. Now, if you go back to chapter 8, that's really sort of the thematic context or backdrop of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, right? I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So so what Jesus is communicating here is that he is the source of spiritual understanding that lights the path to God, All right? There's darkness and people are trapped in darkness, but the light comes so that you might be able to walk in the light rather than walk in darkness. Jesus is the source of that illumination, that light that shines To show the way. And and so, here what we have is the, the basic truth of this statement I'm the light of the world is that Jesus Christ came to dispel darkness and to bring light to those who believe in him, or I think we could say follow him as the expression of that faith. Right, that he is in fact the light. And so we are trusting in him as the one who reveals God's way to us. He's the one who has made that known. All right, look to chapter 10. Chapter 10. And I hope those of you who were anxious when I said I was going to cover four of these are, I'm, I'm keeping my word, we're surveying. All right, we're moving quickly through them. Look at John chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And then look at verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved And we'll go in and out and find pasture. So the context of this, obviously in in chapter 10, he's talking about the sheepfold and the good shepherd. But the backdrop really of chapter 10 is chapter nine. And if you're familiar with what happened in chapter nine, there's a man who's born blind that Jesus heals. And then it becomes a big conflict between the religious leaders and this man, his family, because when Jesus heals him, it happens to be the Sabbath and they're all angry about it. So they're inquiring into it as to who did this. And you've got this, uh, this back and forth happening between the blind man and his parents and the religious leaders. And essentially exposing that the religious leaders who ought to be the shepherds of Israel are actually blind. They're false shepherds. They're not actually true shepherds of Israel. They don't really care about the well-being of the sheep. That's the point. I mean, instead of this man born blind, now sees a miracle of miracles, they want to condemn the man because he says anything positive about Jesus, and the parents are afraid to even own up. I mean, they throw their own son under the bus. He's old enough, ask him. And the text tells us why. It's because these people have said, whoever says something positive about Jesus will be expelled, right? So they're opposed to the Messiah. They're not caring about the sheep at all. They just want to preserve their power. And that's what's the backdrop for chapter 10. And it's important to see that because look at the first verses of chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Then drop down to verse uh, 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So, so what he's saying here is that thieves and robbers do not use the door. They find some other way in. They don't have legitimate access to the sheep. They're actually, they're actually either hirelings or thieves or robbers. That's what he couches the argument against. These are people who don't really care about the sheep. They want to steal or, or uh, trade off for their own benefit. And Jesus is contrasting himself with that. And he does so by declaring himself to be the door. All right. And I think what's going on in this, and, and, um, Lord willing, we'll come back to I'm a good shepherd next Sunday. But where he's doing here, he's actually making a distinction. And, and I think that distinction is between those who have legitimate and proper spiritual authority and leadership and those who don't. All right. The, the robbers, the thieves, the hirelings don't have the right or authority to speak on behalf of God. He does. He is the door. He is the one who provides access to salvation. They they do not. And that's why verse nine, look what it says about him being the door. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10 the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, the sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus Christ came to be the door to salvation. He came to be the access point to life. All right, now, chapter 14, please. Chapter 14. very familiar text, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes the Father but through me. And again, let's look at the context. Verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So The backdrop here is confusion and anxiety about the departure of Jesus. He's begun to be very open about the fact that he's going away. He's going to be killed. And they're starting to be full of anxiety and trouble. I mean, these guys had abandoned everything, really, to follow Jesus. And the Gospels have pointed that out. They walked away from their businesses. They walked away from everything that was... What we would normally identify with security in this world, they had committed themselves to Jesus, and now Jesus is talking about leaving, and and their hearts are full of anxiety about that, and so Jesus is speaking to them about that. Don't let your heart be troubled, right? You need to trust in me rather than surrender to the trouble that's going on inside your heart about this, and Thomas, uh, though obviously labeled Doubting Thomas, does serve us all well by asking the kind of question that we might be inclined to ask. And look what he says in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Right? I mean, Thomas blurts out what we might have been thinking. Like, where are you going? And if we don't know where you're going, how are we going to know the way to get there? Right? It's it, we, you lost us a little bit here, Lord. And and then our answer comes in verse six. And and I don't I want to I want to say this with sort of precision, all right? Because I don't want to make a hard, hard, hard wide divide. Between these, but Jesus' answer is Thomas. The answer is a person, not a pathway. Right? Where are you going? If we don't know where you're going, we don't know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the truth and the life. Right? It's not that you're trying to look for uh, some some uh, pathway to follow as you're going to figure it out, right? It's not like I'm handing you a map and you need to find your way down that pathway, Thomas. He's saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That he fixes their attention on himself because he has already said in this chapter 14 that he will go to prepare a place for them and that he will return for his own. Look at verses two and three. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, and, and you know the way where I am going. Right, so let's, let's just z- zero in for a moment because I, I think it's important for us to understand that when Jesus says in verse two, I go to prepare a place for you, what he's talking about is the way in which he's going to go. right? And that's why I think he reinforces that in verse four, you know the way where I'm going. That way is the cross. It's necessary for Jesus to depart via death on the cross so that he can prepare a place for them. If he doesn't go to the cross and die, there will be no place prepared for them. There will be no hope of heaven. So when Jesus talks about the necessity of his departure and says, it's good for me to go at one point, and I'm going to do this. He's talking about the fact that he has been saying to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. His going is through the cross and through the tomb, which will open up the way into the presence of the Father. He is going to be the one who does that through his death through his resurrection, and he promises then to return and take those who are his to himself, that he must go so that he can open up the way to heaven, and he will guarantee, like he said in chapter 6, he will not lose any of those, but will raise them up on the last day, that Christ's death and resurrection are going to guarantee that, All Right, so so the significance here is that Jesus Christ came to open the way to the Father. No one, and of verse six says, no one comes to the Father but through me. All right, so let me, let me pull them all together. And, and I want us to try and think about it this way, right? The, the reality of life in this world is that we are trapped in darkness and under a sentence of death, right? That's, that's clearly the backdrop for these statements by Jesus. He is the light of the world, and that's because we are trapped in darkness. He is the bread of life, which we need because we are under the sentence of death, right? That's, that's the backdrop for it to understand it. It is very clear from this that we, where we are in our natural human condition, is that we are in darkness and death because of the sin that separates us from God. Right? Men love darkness because their deeds are evil, that we're born into this world as sinners who don't want the light, because if we come to the light, it will expose our deeds as evil, Jesus teaches. That we actually don't realize that we're under a sentence of eternal death, but it's constantly manifested by us prioritizing temporal satisfaction. You're you're seeking for food that perishes. Humanity is running around trying to satisfy our desires and gratify our temporal desires as a way to drown out the echo of the sentence of death against us. Because our conscience, Romans 2 says, is constantly signaling to us that we have an accountability before God. There's a God who made us, and we're going to answer to him, but we're constantly suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That is, we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. We're trying not to think about the point where we're gonna stand before God and give an account of ourselves because we know that sentence will be death. So we try to drown it out with temporal desires, seeking for food that perishes. Right. And he's using it as a metaphor because later on he talks about we'll never thirst either. So he's, he's not saying it's only about what you want to eat. He's saying it's about your whole approach to life. If you can keep yourself occupied with the things that satisfy your daily existence, you won't pay attention to this big issue. Right. That's, that's why. Uh, A text I I quote regularly when I talk with folks who are facing uh, grief and loss, Ecclesiastes says, the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting because that's the end of all the living and they'll take it to heart. Right in the midst of all of our Christmas partying, we don't want to think about the fact that there's a sentence of death over humanity. And when we see and experience death, it it actually speaks to us at a deep level because we all know we're mortal. But we try to drown that mortality out through the parties and pleasures and prosperity of this world. And Jesus says, don't seek for that. Don't chase after that. You realize you're in darkness. The light's here. You better turn to the light because if you walk in darkness, you won't have any idea where you're going. All right, so we're we're in darkness and death, and Jesus came to provide light and life because that's what God's basic character is, right? He dwells in light, unapproachable. He is the God of life, and the God of light and life wants us to be with him. He wants us out of darkness, and he wants us rescued from death. He's the God of light. He's the God of life. And he wants us to have the very gift of his presence so that we can be in the light and have life. So it's really about where we are and where God wants us to be. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life for your death. I am the light of the world for your darkness. I am the door through which you must pass from death to life from darkness to light. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is establishing himself as the only way to God. And when he says, I am, he is making clear to us, right, that it is not and again, I want, to, I want to say it carefully, but he is not giving us a religious roadmap that we can walk our way down to find God. It's not like he sends a map to us and says, okay, now figure out your way to get here. You Here's this set of instructions for you to, to, to do so that you can make it over to the light in life. He's saying, I am the one who gives life. I am the one who sheds light. I am the door that provides salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's, it's Jesus who does all of these things. And when he says, I am He's making clear to us that this is not just some ancient historical figure that we might pick up a book and read about and learn the ways of this person as some ancient teacher, but that he is the living Lord and Savior. He's the one who existed before the world was created and had a glory with the Father that's one with the Father and the Spirit, and he exists now in heaven as the light and the life, the door, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that provides that salvation. So he dispels the darkness, defeats death, so that he can bring us to God and we can have fellowship with him in his light and life. That's why we need to make certain we keep Christ in Christmas. What a shame it would be for us to celebrate the wonder of the Son of God being the only way by which we can be made right with God and brought into fellowship with Him. And it's almost as if we sort of take Him and move Him to the side so we can have a good time. We might be, we might be at times a lot like the people who are looking for lunch. We'll be glad— that we can sit around a big banquet table and have food and we've got nice houses to do it and we can pass out gifts and look at how great our life is without actually it being a moment of worship. That if it were not for the bread of life, we would be still in death. If it were not for the light of the world, we would be trapped in darkness if it were not the fact that through Christ we've been saved, we've been brought into life and abundant life, that we've come to God through him, we must keep Christ at the center of it. And if you've never trusted in Christ, then you need to hear in what Jesus is saying is is that it's not gonna be something you figure out on your own, right? There's not like a, a million pathways up the mountain to God and you have to sort of figure out which one's the right one because you can't. You're in darkness. You need the light of the world to shine in your heart. And he says that's very clearly connected to believing in him, taking his word as the final authoritative word of revelation from God. That's what it would mean. When Jesus says, I'm the light, I have shined in darkness, believing in Him is saying, He is right. When He says, I am the door, not a door, the door, and I am the way, believing in Him says, There are no others. Because to think there's more than one way to God is to deny Jesus. Statement and therefore to consider him lying. Well, there's all kinds of ways to God. Not according to Jesus. There aren't like door number two, door number three, door number four. He says, I am the door. And to deny that is to deny Jesus, and to deny Jesus is to deny God. The only response to these incredible claims of Jesus Christ is to spiritually bow our knee in humble repentance and faith, therefore turning our back on any other answer, bowing to his authority and worshiping him through the confession that he is Lord and that he rose from the dead to provide salvation for all who will trust in him. He is the way. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. He is the door. Have you come to God through him? Have you put your trust only in Christ? None of your works, none of organized religion, no priest or pastor or church can save you. Only Jesus can save you and he did everything that's necessary through his death and resurrection to do so. He dispels the darkness and defeats defeat, uh, defeats death. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending your son so that we could have life through him. Thank you that he was very clear about who he was, and either he was those things or he was a crazy man. You can't have it either way. And and please work in our hearts so that we don't, uh, don't excuse the kind of sloppy thinking that might treat Jesus as something other than what he truly is. Your eternal son sent to become the savior Of sinners. And we thank you for that. Lord, please help us to keep him central to every aspect of our worship at Christmas. And may it be the hope that we have that one day he's coming again for his people. And that's the answer to the troubles we experience in this world. And may it be the glad announcement of our heart to others. That what we're celebrating at Christmas isn't just a a feel-good spirit, a kind of generic hopeful time. But it's rooted in your eternal plan to send your son to become a savior that perfectly fits the needs created by our sin. We're in darkness. We're under death but he is light and life. So we worship him today and offer our thanks to you in his name. Amen.